0: Won't you join me as we we pray? Father, thank you for the wonderful sense of your presence in worship, that we could participate in communion publicly and freely. But I pray as we turn our attention to your word this morning that you enable us to see Jesus, whether we've been walking with him for decades, whether we're just getting to know him, whether we're even wondering about who Jesus is. Won't you give us each just greater insight and revelation as we engage with the text, the Word of God this morning? I pray this in Jesus' name. So we're going to be in John chapter six this morning. Uh, all seventy-one verses will be done by lunch. Um, now we'll skip some sections. But um, so if you want to open your Bible or your device and get to John chapter six, that would be really helpful because we are going to read quite a lot of the text and. I'll just comment as we go through it. It's quite an interesting passage of scripture because what we find in this passage, it's quite shocking, is that Jesus deliberately offends the crowd. In fact, he even offends some of his disciples. It's it's like he keeps just going for it. He keeps getting in their face. And by the end of the chapter, he's quite graphic and blunt with them. And so we're gonna look at that in a moment, but I wonder if you've ever been offended With God. If you've ever been offended by Jesus, maybe you read something in the scriptures and you thought, how can that be? Or maybe something happened in your life and you wondered, how could God do that? And it became quite offensive to you. And this morning, as we look at this passage, I want to maybe just say the following Whenever Jesus elicits a a reaction from us, like maybe he does something which could offend us in our hearts, it's not because he wants us offended it's because he's calling for the response. Whenever Jesus elicits a reaction, he's calling for a response from our hearts. And that's actually what's quite deeply happening in this passage that we're going to study today is Jesus does a couple of miracles, but he's actually calling for a response from his disciples' hearts and his followers' hearts. (coughs) Excuse me. So there's four big things that happen in these 71 verses. Firstly, we read the miracle of the feeding of the five It's a very significant miracle. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, this is the only miracle that we find in all four Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, all four of them find that this particular miracle reveals something very important about Jesus. It's a significant miracle and we'll look at how he miraculously feeds 5,000 people. That transitions quite quickly and Jesus walks on water. The disciples go out in a boat, Jesus comes walking on water to meet them. And then thirdly, we find in this passage also the first I am statement. In the Gospel of John, there's seven I am statements, which I'll mention just a little bit later. But we have what's called the bread of life discourse. It's the first part where Jesus goes, I am the bread of life. And he teaches that and he explains basically the miracle of the 5,000. What was the significance of that? And then at the end of the chapter, there's this Jesus calls his disciples and says, what are you going to do? And some turn away and follow him, but others, the 12 in particular, rise up and they uh, increase their commitment to Jesus. So as always, when we read the Scriptures, there's just some important background things and contextual things that help us understand particularly what we're reading in this passage better. It's interesting in verse 4, John is very clear for us that he says it was close to the time of the Passover, the Jewish Passover. Now in the Gospel of John, uh, he probably mentions, the Apostle mentions definitely, definitely three, some scholars think four, but definitely three Passovers. This is the middle Passover when we're reading John 6 4, he says, the time of the Passover was near uh, so the Jews are starting to get ready to travel to Jerusalem for the most important religious feast and so there is some imagery that points towards that um, but we also know that the crowds are gathering to travel and so perhaps also why Jesus was able to attract such a large crowd is because people were getting ready to travel and to move to Jerusalem and so there is a bit of a timestamp stamp that John gives. This is about the middle, gospel, uh, the middle Passover. So this is about a year probably before Jesus gets crucified. John's helping us see that. And there's some religious context that he's creating as well. But something else that's equally important to understand, particularly if we want to understand the bulk of this passage, is how the first century Jewish people understood the manna and the Messiah. Now Moses Gave uh, while they were in the desert, God supernaturally provides food for the nation of Israel, manna appears for them every morning. But as the Jewish faith developed, they'd come to a certain understanding of that in the first century world. One of the ways they understood that and believed that is that they believed that in heaven there was a storehouse of manna that was held up. God had provided supernaturally for the Jewish people in the desert, but that at a later time in history, this storehouse of manna, this provision of God, would be unlocked. And that had evolved and developed to the point where they believed that manna and the Messiah were linked, that this storehouse of manna would be unlocked when the Messiah comes. And so when Jesus comes and he miraculously multiplies bread, that's what's going on in their minds. Is he the Messiah? Is he the one? Is he unlocking the storehouse of heaven in this place? There's also some illusion um, in 2 Kings 4, Elijah, also he gets some loaves of barley and he, it's insufficient for the number of people. It says in Second Kings 4, there's about 100 men with him. And he feeds the bar, the, them this bread. And it's not enough for them, but the bread also miraculously gets supplied. And in the story of Elijah, it's noted specifically that there was left over. And so there's also this idea that when the Messiah comes, he's going to not only unlock the storehouse of manna in heaven, but also it's going to be more than enough. There's going to be this abundance that comes. And so as we start engaging in this passage, we must see that Jesus is deliberately taking these um, religious images and religious history of the Jewish people and he's recreating them and he's redefining them and explaining also actually how he fulfills it all. Uh, The walking on water we'll talk about a little bit later, but that's very important. So let's just start overviewing the text. We're only going to start reading the actual verses a little bit later. But let's look at uh, John chapter 6 from verse 1 to 15, where Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000 people. So what's happened here is a great crowd had gathered. They'd become aware, they'd heard that Jesus was doing miracles of healing. And so at a certain place next to the lake, where there were obviously some mountains or steep slopes or something, they gather to learn more about Jesus. Jesus sees them coming, and he actually does something interesting with his disciples. He first says to one of his disciples, Philip, what do you think it will cost to buy bread? How are we going to feed all these people? And Philip goes, you know, even if we had half a year's wages, now do the maths. If you had to take half a year of what you earn and times it out, Philip says that won't even be enough to give everybody just a bite. In other words, this is unaffordable. Now, Philip has a certain view of resources, and we don't have time to teach all of that, but he tries to solve problems in a very natural way, in a normal kind of way. But there's another disciple there, his name's Andrew. Now, Andrew's interesting in the Gospels. He's always introducing people to Jesus. Wherever you meet Andrew, and he brings this little boy to Jesus, and he says, here's a boy with five barley loaves. Now, barley was the cheapest grain. It was kind of the staple food of the poorer people. And the region, Galilee, that this miracle takes place in is a poorer region of Palestine in the first century world. So, you know, your wheat would be a high-quality grain that would make nice food, like bread, like we used to today. But this was the poor man's bread. And he only has five loaves. Now, probably a meal would have been about three loaves. So his mother had packed for him five loaves and two fish, just so that the bread wasn't too bland. In fact, John specifies, and he says, two small fish. OK, so this is not the one you pose for the photo with. These are the little ones you slip into the baskets that your son's got a snack. But Andrew says, but what can be done with this? So Andrew's has got this view of what's, what's available to us and what can Jesus do with it? It's a completely different view. So Jesus comes and he orders the crowd. He creates order and he gets the people to sit in groups. And then he gives thanks, just as Letitia read earlier. This was this habit of Jesus. that When he took bread, he broke it. The eucharisteo is the Greek. And he breaks it and he starts distributing it. And the more he gives, guess what? The more there is. The more he gives, the more there is. Eventually, it says about 5,000 men. Maybe the woman just watched. Or John was just talking about everything. But it says about 5,000 men ate. And then just like in the time of Elijah, Jesus orders the disciples and says, don't let anything be wasted. Collect the leftovers. And there's 12 baskets left. And now everyone in the crowd's buzzing. Is this the Messiah? Is this the storehouse of heaven? And we want to pick up when we read, we want to read verse um, 14 and 15. From the text, because we see how uh, Jesus, uh, the reaction of the crowd to this miracle. You can see that the messianic buttons have been pressed. They're starting to switch on. So let's read together John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet, not a prophet, the prophet. I'll talk about that now, who is coming to the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And this is where the background helps us understand some things. So the people firstly tried to define Jesus by their religious expectations. This was actually quite biblical. In Deuteronomy 18, we're not gonna read it, but from verse 15 to 19, Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19, Moses is speaking, Moses the one who had given Israel the law, the words of God. He'd taught them God's will and God's purposes. Moses writes, and he says that in later times, God will raise up another prophet who will like me come and he will teach you. And the text goes on and it actually says, and God will hold everyone accountable who hears his teachings. And so the Jewish people have got this biblical expectation and they're going, Jesus is, he's that prophet. He's the one. Is this the one that Moses spoke about? Another one like Moses is actually the connotation that they had. He's bringing that to them. And so they have these religious expectations. But Jesus also knows, verse 15, that they now want to take him and make him king. And John is so entering, he says, make him king by force. Because they're going, this is the Messiah. And they had a certain expectation of what this meant. They thought the Messiah would be a king who would come. And in the first century world, he would defeat their oppressors. He would kick the Romans out and he would establish Israel as chief of all the nations. you would do many miraculous things. And so they're going, he's the prophet, he's the king. They have political expectations of the Messiah. Now they're taking both their first century religious expectation and their first century political aspirations, and they're putting them on Jesus. And here's the interesting thing, Jesus will have none of it. He walks away, he goes into the mountains, he won't let them do it. Now partly because he understands his purpose, partly because it's not time partly because their expectations weren't correct. They weren't big enough. And so Jesus refuses to be framed by the people's expectations, by the people's needs or their models. We'll see later he's going to define himself, he's going to frame himself. But it's very important that as we read this today, we also give some consideration is, how am I framing Jesus? How am I defining Jesus? What am I wanting to make Jesus part of in what agendas I have? And this interesting thing about Jesus, he just won't be boxed. He won't fit into our neat little packages that maybe we create for him. So what happens next in the text, if you're not going to read it, I'll try and just talk you through it, is Jesus goes away into the mountains so that the crowds can't find him. And as it gets late in the evening, the disciples get into a boat and they go away. Now the crowd's very clear, Jesus is not in the boat. The disciples have sailed away without him. So in their minds, they're hanging around in the area because he's here somewhere. Interesting thing happens, it's the wind comes up, it gets a little bit stormy on the lake, and it says the disciples are rowing, so they're working hard. They've probably rowed five or six kilometres. Anyone here done that? That's work, I think. I haven't done it. Heard about it, okay. And they're working hard five or six kilometres from where they left. They're sailing up to the town of Capernaum, and Jesus comes walking on water. And it's the text very politely says, and the disciples were very afraid. I think they were freaked out, scared, silly. Because they'd never witnessed anything like this. this is completely outside their paradigm. And Jesus comes. By the way, not just a little 20-meter walk on the water. They were far from the shore, some of the other Gospels tell us, five, six kilometers away. And Jesus comes walking faster than they can row. So he's walking, speed walking, on the water. And he comes to them and they're afraid. But when he says, do not be afraid it is, I, they let him in the boat. And then another miracle happens. It says at once they were where they were going. Because they were only probably about halfway where they wanted to go. And then suddenly when Jesus gets in the boat, they arrive. So there's a number of miracles that happen here. And this is also a sign where it shows that Jesus is master. He's Lord over created order, over natural law. He is not bound by it. He, he's above that. But it gives the disciples an additional revelation they're going to need the other day. They know just now, not only has he miraculously fed people, he's not subject to the laws of nature. Now, there's some interesting Old Testament allusions happening here. The Jewish people had made, in their minds, you'll see as we read now, Moses is in their minds, because Moses Moses was around when the first manna came. That was one of the big things that the Jewish traditions attributed to Moses. He fed, or he arranged with God at least, that the nation got fed manna. The second big thing that miracle that Moses did was that he opened the Red Sea, struck his staff in the sea and opened it. And there's some thought by scholars here that what's also happening here and why John includes this is Jesus doesn't just open the water, he just walks right over it. So there's someone here who's greater than Moses is what's starting to be formed. But meanwhile, it's now morning and the crowd wakes up and they start going, where's Jesus? And he's not here and they can't find him anywhere and they know he didn't leave by boat. And John tells us that some other people came from Capernaum. and They said, no, but he's there. And so the crowd moves to Capernaum. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. John chapter 6 from verse 25 all the way to 59. It's it's called the Bread of Life discourse. It's where Jesus talks about being the Bread of Life. What I'm going to do, I'm kind of going to break it up into different sections. Um, And there's different ways you can do this. What I just want to do this morning is I'm kind of going to use the behavior of the crowd. And how people were responding to Jesus to to just uh, uh, create an outline of the text. So the crowd's wondering where Jesus is, and they come and they find him now in Capernaum. And so we find that the crowd is somewhat suspicious. They actually come to Jesus in verse 25 and they say, When did you get here? How did you get here? What's going on here, Jesus? And in the suspicions, Jesus has an agenda, and he says, You came to me. He's very clear, he says, You didn't come to me because of the sign. In other words, because of what the feeding of the 5,000 meant. You came to me because I gave you bread. You came because of your physical needs. Now, this is important. Galilee was a poor area, and Jesus did have compassion. And he did feed the poor. That's part of, it's real. There is a social consciousness, if you will, of Jesus in action. But there's also more that Jesus wants to show, and that's what he's going to explain in this discourse for us. And actually Jesus said to them, don't worry so much about food. Food's important, you need it. But what you actually need to be concerned about is things that give you eternal life. And I'm the one who will give you that. And so let's pick up, eternal life should have priority. And in response to this brief interaction, and now we'll read together quite a bit in the text. In verse 28, the crowds actually then asked Jesus a question. You're saying it's not about the bread. You're saying it's actually about not just temporal things, it's about eternal things. The crowd asks Jesus a question, a very revealing question. And so let's read together verse 28 to verse 34. Then they, the crowd, ask Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? Remember, Judaism in this time is a works-based religion. It's laws and efforts and rules. What are the works we must do? What does God expect of us so that we can get eternal life, that we can be Raised from the dead or be with him forever. Okay. They asked him, What must we do to do the work God requires? And Jesus answers very definitively, he says, The work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. They were expecting a list, obey the Ten Commandments, he says, If you want eternal life, the one thing, the only thing you must do is to believe in the one he sent. And now he's going to start referring to himself as he goes. Verse 30. So they asked him, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe? What will you do? And they've made the link. Our ancestors, verse 31, ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And they quote some of the Old Testament text there. So the crowd knows what's going on. They understand that this feeding of the 5,000 is more than just food. It's about this reflection to the Old Testament uh, tradition, uh, the story of manna in this place. But it's interesting that they ask for another sign. So kind of what they're saying is, show us another sign to show us that you're the one we must believe in. Give us a sign to show us that we should believe in you. Now, some of them, probably not all, have seen the miracle the previous day. We can assume there's some people from Capernaum who've joined, so perhaps they didn't see the sign. So they want a miracle to prove that this is the one that they're supposed to believe in. Part of what they're saying is, "Are you the new Moses? Are you the second Moses? Are you going to be like Moses and deliver us?" And Jesus won't be limited that way. He, as you begin, you'll see, he shows that he's way more than Moses. Verse 32: Jesus said to them, "Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who." Uh, has given notice the past tense it's not Moses who has given you bread from heaven but it is my father present tense who gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world sir they said always give us this bread because they want eternal life that is the question in their hearts Now, it's interesting that even in the Old Testament, we see it in Nehemiah 9, we see it in Psalm 78. The Jewish understanding was very clearly that it wasn't Moses who provided the manna; it was God. But when they're quoting here, they're saying, look, are you going to do what Moses did? Moses provided the manna." and Jesus just resets. Like, kind of, remember what your Bible actually says, is what he's saying to them? It wasn't Moses who gave, it was the Father who gave. And we start seeing here in this passage how Jesus is dependent on the Father and his view of the Father in this place. It's the Father who gave manna in the wilderness. It was God who gave it. And now, just as he gave it in the past, he's giving it to you in the present. It's the bread that comes down from heaven. Now, the crowd's somewhat suspicious, but they're okay with this. They get that. And so they say to him, give us this bread. But now the crowd begins to grumble because he talks about the bread that comes down from heaven. And they understand that Jesus is talking about himself. And so from verse 41 to about 51, the crowd begins to grumble. Their discontent starts. What's this fellow actually saying? And Jesus clarifies for the crowd. So let's read together from verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he had said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph?" Whose father and mother we know, we know who his mom and dad are, we know he didn't come from heaven, we know, they think. How can he now say, I came down from heaven? How can he even make this claim? Because the crowds misunderstand the significance of Jesus. And perhaps they weren't quite aware of the whole virgin birth and, and some of those things. Now watch Jesus, he kind of starts confronting them a little bit. Stop grumbling amongst yourselves. Has Jesus ever said to you, stop grumbling? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Now we must believe, Jesus has very clearly said, there's the works of God that you must believe, but the Father must draw you. So there's this thing when we come to God that He draws us by His Spirit, but we have a real choice to make in terms of believing. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him, and I will raise them up at the last day. And this idea of being raised up at the last day is repeated quite a few times in the next few paragraphs. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, I will give them eternal life. They will live forever. I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. And yeah, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 54, verse 13. And the irony here is, they're actually being taught by God. This is actually happening as they're watching it. And so he quotes the prophets and he says, they will be taught by God. You are being taught by God. Jesus is not confused about who he actually is. Jesus goes on and he says, everyone who has heard the Father and has learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. In other words, I'm the one who has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, I'm the one who knows. For only the one who comes from God has seen the Father. Verse 47, very truly I tell you, the one who believes in Jesus, has eternal life. And then he says the statement, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, he draws the connection, but they died. But here I am is the bread that comes down from heaven. Anyone may eat and not die. If you come, anyone can come. Anyone can come and believe in Jesus and they will not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, and I will give it for the world. And so earlier on in in verse 35 is actually the first place where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And this is a bit of a mic drop moment. Now, the words I am have got these echoes of divinity in them. When Moses asked God, who are you? He said, I am who I am. So I am statements are very important It's not directly claiming that he's God, but Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. If you want life, I am. Not only do I give you physical bread to eat, but I'm more than physical bread. If you want real life, you must come to me. And everyone or anyone who believes, the Father will draw them, but anyone who believes and anyone who comes, they will receive eternal life and I will raise them on the last day. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am, here he says, first time in the Gospel, I am the bread of life. Later on, he says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth and the life. And I am the true vine. Those are the seven statements that Jesus makes. What Jesus is doing here is, I will not be defined as the prophet. I will not be defined as the political king. I know who I am. I will define myself. And if you want to believe in him, you've got to allow him to come to him as he is. Not as you want him to be, not as perhaps he's been forced, you've been shaped to believe he is, but you come to Jesus on his own terms. So the bread of God is the person, Jesus Christ, who comes down from heaven. Now verse 51, Jesus starts really becoming quite shocking, actually. He says, I'm giving my flesh, my physical meat and bones. I'm going to give that. The bread is my flesh. The bread is my body. And I will give it for the life of the world. Now, it's interesting as Jesus talks and he says, I have come down from heaven. And whoever believes, now in the Greek language, it's written in a specific tense. It's called the aorist tense. It's a past tense. But what it also shapes and forms us is that these are once-off events. These are not ongoing events. So he says, I have come down. This was a once-off thing that happened. And yet Jesus is referring to his birth, the incarnation when he came and lived on earth. And because I have come, you can once-off believe in me. And this refers to the point of salvation for every believer. When you believe in me, this once-off event, then you start experiencing Jesus as the bread of life. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there because he introduces this new idea. He says, not just that there is bread from heaven, not just that the bread of heaven is the person who comes down from heaven himself, but that this bread, the person, must be sacrificed. And this is very different from the Jewish expectation of the time that they were living in. He says, my bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And so that sacrifice is part of how Jesus is life to us. Now, Jesus, if we look further on, the crowds escalate. They start, they're not just grumbling now. Now they're arguing among themselves. And so we read from verse 52 to 59, the crowd argues among themselves. The discontent grows. But I'm quite surprised here by Jesus' reaction. Jesus doubles down. Jesus takes it up a level. He doesn't do What what I would have done, and I think many pastors might do, he doesn't go, No, 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 you're misunderstanding. Let me just explain nicely. Sit down, let's have a cup of coffee, let's talk it through. He just goes, No ways. Let me just tell you what's actually going on here. And so, verse 52 the Jews began to argue amongst themselves, How can this man give us flesh to eat? Now, this is so interesting because. They've understood that there's symbolism involved here. They understood that the feeding of the 5,000 was a symbol of the manner. They understood that it's now part of Jesus. And now suddenly, because they're offended or starting to be increasingly offended, they go quite literal. Is he gonna give us his body to eat, his flesh? Because they don't like what he's saying. Because as soon as they, Jesus said that the sac, the, the, he'll give his flesh as a sacrifice, he steps out of their paradigm. He steps out of their understanding of who Jesus is. They thought the Messiah had come would come to rule and reign. And Jesus comes and says, no, not now. I'm coming to sacrifice. And this scandalizes them. It's a good word. It scandalizes them quite a bit. He's not doing what they expect. Now, a warning for the visual thinkers in the room. There's some graphic imagery coming up. And it's so interesting that Jesus becomes this graphic with the crowd. It's because they're almost like deliberately not hearing him. They're deliberately not responding. They're arguing amongst themselves. In the first century Jewish culture, this is completely offensive. In fact, I still think the image is quite offensive as I read it. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. There is no eternal life unless you partake of Jesus. That's what he's trying to say symbolically. There is no eternal life outside of Jesus unless you partake of Jesus. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. It's true life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Now, that, those words he's going to pick up again later on, John, in chapter 15. But if you do not partake in Jesus, you cannot remain in him, and he cannot remain in you. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live. So in the same way that I live under the Father, um, so, is the one who, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. We replicate the same pattern. This is the bread that came down from heaven. I imagine Jesus pointing at his body and going, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. And that's the truth. They died in the desert. But whoever eats of me will live forever. The way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. And he said this all of this while teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. And so there's this progression that has happened through this chapter. Jesus provides earthly bread, barley loaves, miraculously. But he tells them that there is a bread that comes from heaven and the association of manna is built. He then tells them that this bread is the person. He's the one who come down from heaven himself, that he is the bread. Not that he just gives bread, but he is bread. And just like bread must be consumed to give life in the natural, just as you eat bread or pop, to be consumed in the natural to give life, so you must consume, you must partake of Jesus' life. And that life is his sacrifice on the cross. I give my life for the world. I lay down my flesh for the world. And so Jesus' life is a sacrifice. This is scandalous to the first century Jew, as I mentioned. And they respond, they get angry. Now, some scholars debate these passages and the graphic imagery, and they say they see some elements of the communion language, like we celebrated it there this morning. And I think that's there. It's Passover season. There's this idea of sacrifice. that's in the minds. But it's interesting. John doesn't say, this is my body given for you. He's saying, this is the flesh. He intentionally chooses a different word. Chapter 1, verse 14, uh, Prof. Eleanor taught on it so amazing in the Bible school this morning, where Jesus came in the Flesh and he dwelt among us, and so there's this reference to that he came as a real human, fully God, fully man, and he paid the price and he gave the life. So I think these words are pointing to more than just a communion formula, they're pointing to Jesus' death, his sacrificial death for us. So imagery beyond the Passover, and so I think what Jesus is saying is, unless you assimilate me, assimilate my words, it will become clear in a moment into every aspect of your being, you will not experience life as God intended. You will not experience eternal life, for sure. Unless you partake of the death of Jesus Christ, you believe, what is it to do the works of God? To believe in the one that he sent. Unless you do that, there is no life. And the chapter comes in for a closing. Because Jesus' disciples, verse 60 to 70, we'll look at now. Jesus' disciples respond. Some respond, and it's like a low light. Some just turn away. It says his disciples turn away and don't follow him. And then he turns to the 12. We'll read it now. But they step up big time, and it becomes quite a high point in the gospel. So John chapter 6, verse 60 to 70. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching, who can accept it? I so wish this verse had said, many of the crowd said. Because we'd understand, as we see later, that some would turn away. But it says, many of his disciples, Jesus didn't have just the 12 disciples at this time. There were a couple hundred disciples that just started actively following him. And they say, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And I read that and I thought, why did they say that? Surely, I mean, they're disciples, they must get this. And I think it's because he's really challenging their view of the Messiah. He's challenging their view of who, he, they, sorry, who they expected him to be. The fact that he said, I'm going to give my flesh, the Messiah is going to come as a sacrifice, was very hard. Because their whole lives they'd heard something different. Their whole lives they'd probably even been taught something different. And now Jesus comes and he turns it all upside down. And this is hard. Verse 61 aware that his disciples were grumbling about this. Not the crowd that's grumbling, it's the disciples. Jesus said to them, does this offend you? He knows he's being offensive. He's not confused. He's gotten right in their face. And then he says, what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? Now this happens later that he does ascend, but he's going, will that offend you too? If you see me going back to my father, if you see me going back to heaven, I've told you I'm gonna give my life as a sacrifice. If I go back to my father, is that gonna offend you? Two, is that going to be too far for your sensibilities? The Spirit gives life. In other words, the words He spoke. And the Spirit gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of Spirit and life. They come from God. You are being taught by God, Isaiah 54. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, and John interprets this, for Jesus had known from the beginning Which of them did not believe and who would betray him? So John's very clearly going, even here, a year before the final Passover, the year before the crucifixion, Jesus knows one of his disciples is going to betray him. He's got foresight. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father enables him. The Father must draw people. Then the sad, sad verse, verse 66. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him because he did not fit their messianic mold. And sometimes people come to Jesus with a specific picture or mold and Jesus doesn't fit that, certain expectations. And then some redemption, verse 67. You do not want to leave me too, do you, Jesus asks the 12. And so obviously he was speaking to some disciples in general and then he turns to the 12 and he says, do you also want to go? Is this too much for you? And then Simon Peter, always Peter. Simon Peter answers and said, Lord, to whom should we go? I've said those words in my life when, it's been, when I've gone through some difficult things. I'm going, oh, is this, is this like so much? But where will I go, Jesus. Where will I go? Peter goes on and he says, you have, watch the language, the words of eternal life. The words of Jesus are the bread of life. His life is the message, but also what he teaches. So just like the prophet in Deuteronomy 18 would come, just like Isaiah said, you'll be taught by God, Peter gets it. The 12 get it. They go, you have the words of life. In other words, they see he is the bread of life. Everything he said is true. Amazing, verse 69. We have come to believe. What's the works of God? To believe in the one he said. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Messiah. You are who you say you are. Some of the other gospels Jesus commenced, Peter. And then Jesus here just says in verse 17, Jesus replied, have I not chosen you Yet one of you is the devil and there's this massive contrast that's going on in the heart of Jesus. He's so excited about what Peter has said, but he knows that not everybody is going to follow him truly. So the disciples get it. So how does this apply to us? And worship team, you guys can join me today. I think this passage very clearly is an encouragement to partake of Jesus, to eat his words, to participate in who he, learn about who he is, learn about his life Learn his teachings, but remember he's more than Moses. He isn't Moses version two. He's way more than Moses. He does more than Moses could ever have done. But in this passage, there's also a very clear warning not to misappropriate Jesus. Don't take Jesus and put him in your box. You need to take Jesus on his own terms. One of the commentators on this passage, his surname is Burge, he says, when we take Jesus by force to serve as a pawn, In our religiously sanctioned political program, we are no different from the crowds in Galilee. And I wonder what program we have defined for Jesus in our lives. We do not get to control and define Jesus for our ends. No matter what spectrum you're on, left or right, political spectrum, left or right, you cannot define Jesus on your own terms. Social spectrum, left or right, you cannot define Jesus on your own terms. Religious spectrum, left, Liberal or conservative, you cannot define Jesus on your own terms. Theologically, you cannot define Jesus on your own terms. He will define himself. I am the bread of life. And so have you ever been offended by something Jesus has has said? I say this with... (laughs) A lot of love, I prayed through this. As much as I can be honest, I say this with love. I think if Jesus has never offended you, has never pushed you beyond your paradigm, won't you perhaps consider that you've defined Jesus in your own terms? Jesus has been wholly comfortable to you. To coin a really silly phrase. If Jesus has been like a sugar daddy to you, whatever you ask for, he just is your benefactor. He gives you whatever you want. Maybe you need to today just come and say, Lord, let me see you as you really are. So what does it mean to that Jesus is the bread of life to feed on Jesus? It's to realize he has the words of life. We don't follow our religious forms and religious systems and structures. We live to We live to pursue a daily encounter with Jesus. We live to pursue the I am who steps into my life and I find that he's more than enough. He gives himself to me. He has the words of life. And so we want to pursue not Hatfield's Jesus, not the charismatic tradition Jesus, not the evangelical Jesus. We want to pursue the biblical Jesus, the one who has the words of life. Jesus unfiltered the title of the message is life in jesus there is only life in jesus christ only in him can you have eternal life only in him will you be raised from the dead one day jesus is so clear in this passage so can i invite you to stand and we'll pray together i trust you understand that jesus is not just a sunday jesus Jesus is not just a Jesus who wants you to give Him an hour and a half or so every once a week. Jesus wants to become part of every aspect of your life. He wants to pervade everything you do. So here at Hatfield, we use language like, you need to be a whole life disciple. Jesus wants to come and be part of every aspect of your life. That you have a frontline, a place where He's put you to extend His kingdom. Jesus wants to be there. Wherever you are this time tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, wherever you are, invite the I am into that space and you will find that He's more than enough. He's more than you could have imagined Him to be. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You that You are the bread of life. You're the one who gives us true life and real life. And for those who are listening on TV or on radio and here in the room today, Lord, who've never accepted you as their true life, who've never accepted your sacrifice, I pray that as the loving Father, you would draw them to yourself. Won't you, by your Spirit, work in their hearts to give them the choice, to make the choice to believe? And for those of us who have already believed, we've already accepted the sacrifice. Take off the blinkers, Jesus. Help us to see wider and further and beyond our own expectations, beyond our own needs, past our own agendas and to embrace the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Saviour and Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray you bless your people as they go into this week. Make your face shine upon them and give them peace and favour and courage in every area of their life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like prayer this morning to know Jesus, to give your life to Him, won't you please come and then just tell the person that's praying with you that you'd like that. If you need prayer for any other need, we'd love to pray for you. Now, as I mentioned earlier, many of our pastors are on the men's camp. So if we can ask if there's some shepherds or community group leaders to also come to the front and the ministry team, we'd love to pray with you. And then if you want to know more about Hatfield, please connect with Pastor Letitia at the Connect Lounge. It's just as you go out in the foyer on your left, there's a hall there that you can meet everyone. God bless you as you go into the week.